You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Janie Godley. I recorded this conversation in the Newcastle Stand Green Room. Thank you very much to the stand for having us all that weekend uh, and for letting me record in your wonderful, wonderful uh, comic strip covered room. Uh, Janie is a revelation to me. People have been telling me, perhaps you were among them, that I should get her on the podcast for years and years. And uh, I've just never had the pleasure of seeing one of her shows. So it was an absolute revelation to see her batter a club audience in a sold-out Newcastle stand. Uh, And you can see, I mean, I can imagine, and we we talk in this episode about the incredible storytelling that she's capable of, sort of in the vein of Billy Connolly, if that's not too lazy a comparison, Um, but all of it based on some of the most extraordinary life experiences. Now, while we're on the subject, a content warning, we will be talking from the very start of this episode about some of the abuse that Janie suffered as a child, uh, not to mention some uh, tricky aspects of her life. So I think, as content warnings go, you should probably just go into this one generally warned. Janie is on tour at the moment, and if you are anywhere in Britain, she's touring outside of Scotland and down well well into England. Uh, So have a look at janiegodley.com to find out her tour details. Uh, If you, as I'm sure you will, get a lot out of this. This is Janie Godley. How was last night's gig for you? We're here at the stand in Newcastle. It's good. I really enjoyed it. It's it's, it's a proper comedy savvy crowd, and it's nice. You know, they're all in. The good thing about the stand is they know where to put the audience, and they know where to put the stage. Go because on. so many clubs, you know, that they, 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 they don't think through where the audience should be sat and where the stage should be. They're just happy to have a comedy gig. So sometimes you can be in one corner and they can be in the other, and then there's a big troop of people going to the toilet halfway th- you know whereas the good thing about the stand is they know how to lay it out yes so i really enjoy that and enjoy and and also that they're on the side of the comics if anybody gets too chatty or shitty or mumbly they deal with it straight away so the club good. or the audience oh, the club the, the club, club. Yeah, yeah. yeah and do you get nervous before a show um no i don't i mean i get excited and i want on stage i want everybody to shut up and just let me on but I don't get nervous. I, I don't know. And that, that's not to say that I should be nervous because if you're not nervous, you're not enjoying it. I don't believe that. I get excited about doing it as opposed to, 
Oh my God, I'm so nervous. What if I can't remember my words? I have never forgotten a word. I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) If one thing doesn't work, another will. Yeah. Because I was thinking this morning, the sort of comedian that you are and the sort of voice that you have, I think for a lot of comics, comedy is something which saved them, which kind Mm -hmm. of gave them a voice. But I feel like knowing you a little bit Mm. as I do, knowing your work, knowing (coughs) your history, I feel like you have always had your voice. Yes, I think I've always had, I think because when you grow up against adversity, you either just accept you don't have a voice and you best shut up for the rest of your life, or you go, I'm going to shout dead loud until I die. And I think I fall into the laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And when you say adversity, for people who don't know your uh, backstory Mm. and your Mm. history... I mean, I don't know if it's possible to give us a potted history of it because, uh, I mean, if you look at the back cover of your autobiography, mm-hmm. the, the bullet points there are yeah. startling and you think nothing of sort of <laughs> dropping details in that just have the room... You know, we're howling laughter one minute and the next one, oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Um, well, I was abused as a child. Um, I grew up in sort of poverty and we shouldn't have because my dad did a good job. But my, my dad was a functioning alcoholic who you know, wasn't your traditional alcoholic when he came home and beat the kids up and threw the cat out the window. My dad went to work, but he loved his kids, you know. I never knew my dad was an alcoholic until he stopped drinking. But he was a functional alcoholic. My mum was feckless and weird, and she'd had... I'm the youngest of four, and she'd had such a a difficult life, so I think she can't... I mean, her, her mum died young, so when she got married to my dad, she'd a wee brother and sister at six and four, so she had, to take, so she had two kids at marriage, yeah. you know, a brother and sister. Um, and I believe her father was a child abuser as well, so I think there was a lot of dark secrets that were carried on into this generation. Sure. And then her brother had been abusing me and my sister. And then when I grew up, my mum, when we got to about 12, my mum and dad separated and then she became really, she went off the rails and she used to take a lot of, like, mother's little helper, like, was normal. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, I'm trying to make this potted. And then um, uh, I get I married young into a kind of sort of criminal family. And then my brother got HIV. He was a drug addict. Then my mum got murdered. Um, and then and I had a pub for many years. And then in 1994, my father-in-law died and the police caught a lot of guns in his house mm. and I was there and then I thought oh, do you know what I'm going to become a comedian because I don't know what else I can do <laughs> talk to me about I mean my god what and that's not that's not the half of it I know that is that is very kind of potty and you speak about it with such a kind of frankness mm-hmm. have you always had that kind mm-hmm. of ability to talk about it yeah yeah and when I was young I spoke out about the abuse and I was told to shut up you know, my, my mum, I told her. and But, you know, people say, I don't know how you can speak with fondness about your mum. when, you, But, and I'm not making excuses for her, because she ended up murdered. So if I ever wanted ha-ha revenge, she got it, you know. But I don't. But she was so fucked up. She, I I, genu- I know that my grandfather was an abuser, abuser as well. So God knows what he put her through. Yeah. So when I was like seven and eight and I told her her brother was, and I, I remember saying he touches me down there and he makes me upset. And, and she grabbed me and she went, don't you tell your dad. If you tell your dad, your dad will kill my brother and your dad will go to jail. Do you want that? And, and in a terrible sense, I can kind of see 
I see what she was saying. I mean, like, things weren't fucked up enough. If my dad went to jail, you know, it was worse. And she had so many secrets, George, so many. She would say things like, don't tell dad, but I haven't been paying the rent, we're going to get evicted. My dad was at work going, lippity-doo-doo-dee-doo, in the steelworks, not knowing that there's a warrant sale in the house. She kept so many secrets. Um, So, in a sense, I don't give her a pass on it, but I kind of see... I mean, she ended up in a mental hospital about three times and she had epilepsy and she put her feet in the fire by accident. I was there. And she had such a fucked up life that there's a part of me goes, she was as much a victim of this as as I was. You know, so having said that, if Ashley said to me at seven, my uncle, your brother, is abusing me, I'd put a gun in his mouth and shoot him in the street. But I'm not the mother that my mother was, and I accept that. Do you think that you're, that being silenced at an early age and mm-hmm. the secrecy mm-hmm. of the mother is a big part of what, like you, you were exposing you, everything? Yeah, you're yeah. the antithesis of secrecy, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, I will tell everybody everything, and I don't care. And if they can't handle it, don't listen. But I, I believe that secrets destroy people. You know, I think that. If you keep things such a secret all the time and it's this um, facade of a happy life, you know, you see it on Instagram and Facebook, like having a great day, feeling blessed. And I think people need to do that because maybe they are or maybe they're having such a shit time that this is the only way they can get through it. I'm the woman who will write on Facebook, married 39 years this week to a man who genuinely we should have separated years ago but we've muddled through you know with complete honesty Mm. you know I'm a great believer and if you smash your own windows nobody else can come and surprise you with a brick I mean that is uh, (laughs) although I don't disagree with the sentiment Mm -hmm. that kind of metaphor is shot through with the sort of violence that yeah. that has been done to you and that you've seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hate violence. I, I still can't watch, um, you know how, like, people, or what, you know, I, I watched um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I'm a BAFTA member, so I got all the videos, the DVDs oh, yeah, yeah. early. And I was sitting in the house watching it. And I, I don't know if you've seen it. There's an extremely yet, no. violent scene at the end. And, I mean, it's fucking absolutely extreme it's what's his name that directed it Tarantino at his biggest erection is happening here you know um and weirdly I was sitting through it and going oh and Ashley came into the room and she went are you okay mum I went yeah she went this is really because she knows I don't like to watch extreme violence on telly but it was so cartoonish that I was it was like Tom and Jerry you know so I was getting with it but if I see a fight in the street or if I see people punch each other, I, I go, I don't like to see violence because I never did. And I think that's my years in the pub, you know, when you used to watch people fucking punch into each other. I was horrified. I just hate it. It still makes me feel very uncomfortable, as it should everybody. You know, yeah. that's a normal reaction. So when you, the decision to become a, a comic, just talk to us about that. Uh, it was very, I mean, this is such a hard thing to explain. Back in 1993, 94, in the East End of Glasgow, where my pub was, I was always funny behind the bar, and I always had these men who would come in and they would say things like, oh, you should wind Janie up, it's really funny, she's really good at answering. And I would always have these comebacks and put-downs and things, and it was just a bit, you know, it was the thing. Things that kind of just, just ask on that, on kind of like sort of self-defence put-downs yeah, for yeah, getting aggro from customers. say things like, oh, Janie... 
Um, you've got really big tits. And I'm like, seriously? They're like, can I touch them? No. Well, I fought in World War Two, or I was in the Korean War. It's a pity you never died in it. You know, I would just sure. argue, you know, back all the time. And, and were those things always... Um improvised or would you ever was there any no, planning no they were mostly we're improvised to... because there were very unique situations for each person you know okay but then when we get caught with the weapons in his dad's house it weren't ours obviously um, and his family were just such arseholes and I said I really don't want to be that woman who's a barmaid who's wearing an applique jumper and her hair up like Coronation Street at 60 that's not how I see my life. I don't want to do this anymore. Well, my husband has got autism and he's not employable. He has to be self-employed. Nobody could work with him. Mm. And he had no transferable skills at all. And it was one night in the pub, I got a phone call. To this day, I don't know who it was. And they said, at the Tron Theatre, which wasn't far from my pub, um, there's a gong show. I've seen you behind the bar. You're really funny. Why don't you come and do comedy? Well, the thing is, the only other comedian I'd ever seen was Jerry Sadowitz because he started in my pub. Okay, okay. 1984, my brother brought Jerry Sadowitz into the pub and went, that's my pal, that's a bit of magic and comedy. And he made jokes about the hunger for and all that. I remember these jokes. For, for, for the listeners who don't know Jerry Sadowitz, no. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more scabrous, acerbic yep. comic. One with kind of politically... He's what's his line about being an equal opportunities offender. Yeah, he's not offend. just a monster. Yeah. He's a very deliberate yeah. monster. And you can imagine all those sort of old gangsters in the pub listening to this man shouting at them. It was hysterically funny. <laughs> I'm was... just going to pause for a minute to imagine the what your view of the the landscape of comedy was. If the only comic you've ever seen is Jerry Sadowitz, and you think that's yeah. what the thing that's, is, that's that's what I thought the thing was. I mean, I'd seen comedy on TV, but it never made any sense to me because I didn't like the Pythons, I didn't like Morecambe and Wise, I didn't like Tommy Cooper, I didn't like oh Matron, I didn't like all that. Oh, me mother-in-law, I didn't. It was all just English men in suits, mm. and they didn't sound or look anything like me, and it didn't make any sense to me. They all, I thought all comedians at one point were men who worked in banks because that's what they looked like. Mm. Until Billy Connolly turned up in 1975 on the Parkinson show with a velvet jacket and a pair of flares. And I went, there's a man that speaks like me. Up until that point, none of them. The only person that made me laugh was Dave Allen. So back to the pub. I'm in the pub and this guy says, why don't you come and try out for this comedy night? Yeah, sure. So I went to the bar and um, Fort Kiernan, who is now uh, still game, he was there okay. with John Paul Leach, who was his original partner. Didn't know him Dales. I didn't know him either, but I now retrospectively know who he mm-hmm. was. And um, you get five minutes on the mic, and it was all these sort of 1994, 1993 students in Glasgow with their long coats all hanging out about hue and cry and the poll tax and blah, blah, blah. And um, I just got up and I slagged them off and I nailed it and I beat the gong. And then I thought, well, I'm quite good at that. That's weird. That was just like telling people to leave the pub. And I went back to my husband and I said, I quite like doing comedy. Before that, I had done amateur drama. When I was in the pub, my only escape was to leave the pub and go and do drama. And the reason I wanted to be an actor was going even further back to 1981 when Gregory's Girl was out. And it was the locals in my pub were used for that because Paddy Higson was a director who had the only independent film studio in Scotland. Okay. And she used to pick up these young um, local guys and Belfort Scythe put them in movies. Mm-hmm. 
And so I had boys in my pub who were just working class East End boys who were actors. And I thought, well, you can do that. Mm. That's possible, maybe. I always fancied being an actor. Maybe that would be great. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll go get an equity card and become an actor. Naivety. <laughs> so then I went to equity in 1994, but it was a closed shop and you had to do stage time to get your equity yeah. card. So I thought, I'll do comedy and then that'll be stage time to get my equity card. Nobody would help me. And of course, I forgot to be an actor and just kept doing stand-up. And then when I left the my father-in-law's house in 1994, my brother-in-law, George, who I hated, his last words to me is, you're fuck all but a barmaid. And he's right, I am. And I was a barmaid in an Oscar-nominated film called Wild Rose. So I hope he saw that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. There is, to what extent is your... Um drive based on revenge oh everything absolutely I, the, i'm one of those people Stuart. if you'd have just left me alone i would not have done stand-up but every single time when i started in stand-up i had never seen another female comic i'd just seen jerry sadowitz there is no female stand-ups in scotland there were none so i was doing a job i hadn't seen performed lots of men lots of men I had never, so you go back to 1994, there was maybe Donna McPhail and Rona Cameron, but I'd never seen them. Mm. So I was doing a job that I'd never seen before. So I didn't have something to cut it out from. Yeah. So I just did what I did. And it was up against all the boys back then. And they hated it because every single gig I did, I nailed it. By luck, flaw or complete fucking force of personality, I would not leave until I nailed it. So I came up against quite a lot of sort of class snobbery back then and about a bullying. But here's the horrible thing. Because I was so used to being bullied by men in my family, I never realised I had been bullied. I just accepted it as the workplace. For instance, like the male comics, who will remain nameless, would um, try and always neg me and put me down all the time. And then, like, um, you know, at the fringe... They they wouldn't give me a venue. They would always say, you know, she's... I mean, I remember when, and it was female comedy promoters, would say things like, you're too rough, you're too loud. And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm funny and I make people laugh. Yeah. So I remember going to um, Late in Live, which was down in the Cowgate at the time. Yeah. And it was like 1995. And it was all these comics. And I was overawed. You know, there was like... Um, Joe Brand, there was Lynn Ferguson. There, I mean, they were all sweet. And there was like Parrot and there was like Alan Davies, all these people. And I'm like, I've seen these people on TV. And then late in live and Karen, who owned the Gilded Balloon at the time, she kind of knew of me because I'd forced my personality on her. I went, I want to be a comedian. She's like, I don't like the way you speak or talk. So I was like, okay. So anyway, they had this late in live gig and this was absolute pivotal to my career. So I'm standing at the back with... You know, Karen Corn and all these sort of famous comics and Irish comics that came over. And Malcolm Hardy came out with Phil Kay. Mm-hmm. And the audience were like, yeah, and they came out naked, saw a lot of cock back then. Men loved to get naked back then. Not women, of course not. So the audience are like, what the fuck is going on? So Malcolm Hardy, who was this iconic. Uh, I never, 
understood it to me. He was a chaotic drunk man who I didn't like being around because I don't like chaotic drunk people. Sure. So I never saw the comedy. I just thought that man's... And people would say, oh, he was a legend. He'd pick up a plate of soup and put it in his jacket pocket. I wanted to punch him for that. That was really chaotic. I don't understand <laughs> that as comedy. To me, that's the kind of man I would have barred out my pub. Yeah. And they disrespected Malcolm. We became friends, but he did behave himself when he was around me because I would not tolerate him. Mm -hmm. So on stage at the Gilded Balloon at Leighton Live in 1995, there was Phil Kay naked, Malcolm Hardy naked, and they were carrying a plank of wood. The audience were like, we don't like this. We don't understand it. The women and the men and all the comedy are up the back are going, this is genius, genius. And I'm like, oh my fucking God, I can't do comedy. Because if they think this is genius and the audience don't like it, then I don't understand what it is I'm meant to do to impress these people because yeah. that's not genius. Those two men get naked in my pub where a planker would have put them out. I'd seen genius. I'd seen Jerry Sadowitz pluck the darkest joke from the furthest parts of his brain in 1984, 10 years earlier, and make people laugh. Even people who did not like comedy laughed because he had a structure of a joke. It was not standing naked shouting, oh, I've got a blank of wood, because they would have just thrown him out the pub. So I just couldn't figure out how I was going to be a comedian if there's two naked men carrying a plank of wood and all these people who are in industry that I have to impress are going, genius, genius. And I'm like, this is a pile of shite. What is wrong with you? You know, that the emperor has no clothes that moment when somebody goes into an art gallery and sees a blank canvas and goes, no, you're fucked. You shouldn't be paying for this. You know, I was in that moment. And I'm like, I can't do this. I can't. So then it was my turn to go on stage. And I went on. And I remember one of the jokes I had was, back then they used to have... By the way, I don't tell lots of jokes about sanitary towels. I told one last night. <laughs> but back then I had a joke about a sanitary towel because they used to do, in the television, they would write blue ink on the sanitary yes. towel. And I went on stage and I remember one of the jokes was, what woman here has pulled down their pants and there's been a sanitary towel with blue writing? You go to the hospital if that happened. But it was structured there. The audience laughed because it was a genuine thing they could make sense of. Yeah. And I did some jokes about the pub and we men, that joke I did last night about the two guys coming to the pub and the blonde hair. And yeah. That's been part because it happened. The audience loved it. They cheered and laughed. And I was absolutely elated that this very new comic did this really original material and it was really funny and it was true stories and things I had felt. And I went up and I said to the promoters, what did you think of that? And they went, oh, you're disgusting. Who talks about fanny pads? I went, there was a man naked with his cock out carrying a plank of wood. Nobody fucking laughed. What the fuck is wrong with you people? And they all went, no, we don't like you. <laughs> What, so, what, what did you feel at the time? Obviously anger. Resentment? Yeah. I think I was bemused because I'm thinking, I always have been self-employed. I've always had a pub. So you listen to your customers. Yeah. I already had that. If my customers come in and went, Janie, I really like the pub, but that toilet stinks, I'd go fix the toilet. I wouldn't say, no, this is another guard pub that has a smelly toilet. I would listen to my customers. So I couldn't understand how somebody could run a business and not listen to their audience. That didn't compute in my brain. 
So this is Janie. It's just, as I mean, I mentioned her seeing her stuff was a revelation. She's so, so funny and in such complete control of the audience. It's just a joy to see a woman who's a little bit older on stage, completely owning a room. Uh, and you can imagine when she talks about her uh, her life experience as a barmaid and her origins as a bar manager, sorry, um, you can really see that sense of absolute fearlessness that really is is sort of written through her like a stick of rock. Uh, she is really, really great value as a, a live act. So do go to janiegodley.com to find out about her tour. And there are numerous extras. There's 25 minutes of extras uh, from this show available. If you're a member of the Insiders Club, you can join up at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, uh, where Janie is going to talk about how her refusal to play along led to her being banned from a very popular chain of comedy clubs, um, how she approaches publicising and talking in public about her criminal or the criminal connections of her family whilst keeping her own nose clean, uh, the ramifications of her husband's autism. And there's some really sort of tender stuff there about what it's like being in a long-term relationship with someone uh, who has autism. And the glee that Janie feels at her daughter Ashley Story's success in the comedy world. Loads of that really good gear there from Janie. All available now to you at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, which will sign you up for the private podcast with all of the extras from any episode that has them. Remember to follow Janie at Janie Godley. She's tremendously good value on Twitter because it's great fun seeing her have long and involved arguments with people who are giving her hassle. Um, as well as she often tweets some very, very funny things where she overdubs uh, news programmes and does very loose but very, very funny impressions of the people involved. So that's at Janie Godley. You can catch up with me at Stu Goldsmith or indeed at Comcom Pod or join the Comedians Comedian Facebook group to keep abreast of all the latest developments in the life of the podcast. Um, there's been some fantastic stuff on there recently, uh, a link to a really good article um, in a newspaper with Gary Delaney where he breaks down his advice for new comics. Uh, thank you, Elliot Clark for posting that. Um, David Nelson has been um, posting a, a very uh, oft-commented-on post about um, whether or not we think Edinburgh will be cancelled due to coronavirus. First mention of the virus on this podcast. We'll have a little post-amble about that after the show. Um, there's some talk about comedy meetups for people seeing uh, comedy on their own. Uh, some chat about the recent Alexi Sale episode and um, some passionate conversation about um, the outtake. This begins, Bradley Templey begins his post, I watch the outtake from the Bottom Live show in Southampton regularly. Um, and uh, so we go on to have a conversation about the idea of an ad lib versus a scripted ad lib. Lots of great stuff on there and it remains, as ever, a very nice corner of the internet. And while I'm advertising stuff on the internet, you would be a fool not to go to tinyurl.com slash stew2020. That's an easy way to remember what's otherwise quite a convoluted link. tinyurl.com slash stew2020. That's where you can get tickets in advance for my Edinburgh Fringe show, The Void, on at Monkey Barrel 1. At ten past three throughout the Edinburgh Festival, which is definitely going to happen. Right, let's get back to the rest of this conversation with Janie Godley. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you. 
did you have the notion of like, right, I've got to get my own crowd. I've got to do my own gigs. I've got to run my own club. Yeah. And like, did you start just staying with the business side of that? Did you start collecting audience members? Did you start like, did yeah. you get into mailing lists or, no, or I, stuff I, like that? What, what were you doing pre-internet I, to kind of make that work? Well, we did have mailing lists because my husband, as you know, has got autism and he liked to do the business side of it. He'd go get everybody to put their email address down. And it was way back when it was dial-up and we used to send people these emails and people would phone me up and go, my computer is getting a fax at five in the morning. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is all very new. But... Um, I have always, I mean, I, I've got a loyal sort of fan base of people who who go way back to the 90s who have always been fans of my work and stuff. And then the internet obviously opens you up to, you know, more. And I, I don't hold any grudges and I'm not angry about it. I mean, as I say, that, that, that when there was all these sort of e-comedy cliques and I wasn't getting gigs because people either didn't like me or because, I don't know, but I just thought... I will consciously not be that person when if I have a gig. So that, and that's what I did when I ran um, Jesters originally in Glasgow in 2000 and then Wild Cabaret. I'd put a thing out on Facebook and go, you don't need to be my pal. I don't need to know you. Turn up, do an open spot. If you come for a really long distance, I'll try and give you a train fare because I knew that people were skint doing this. Yeah. I'm always conscious of the, the poverty aspect of some acts. And... Um, and just do your best and I'll give you stage time. And I did that for five years. And a lot of great young comics got great stage time because it was a tough old gig. And that was more important than anything because I remember that feeling of not being walking past. The stand in Glasgow was beside my house. And I wasn't allowed in it. So I remember that feeling of being ostracised, you know. Talking about the 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 art for you, the, the art of yeah. stand-up and the craft of stand-up, because it seems even just that gig you did last night, your headliner stand here was a fantastic show. It seems like it seems with your comedy, I think the craft seems less visible than most yeah. because, you know, you could, you know, the way sometimes audience members might misunderstand how comedy works and think you just literally get up there yeah. and, and start talking. I like making it look like that. You do. <laughs> yeah. I want them to think I'm an over-friendly cleaner that just wandered in. That's my door. Why? Why? I, because I think that's who I am. I, that's who I am. And my daughter Ashley's a stand-up as well now. And, um, and her and I, she's got a very different approach to comedy and, she writes stuff down. I've never written anything down. I just remember everything. But she will say things like, and it was really, it was lovely when she said it. She'd been on tour with me for years. She came to the French since she was nine, did her own show at 13 as well. But when she started seriously being a stand-up when she was older and she went, oh, I fucking hate you. I really can't believe. Now, as a comic, I stand at the side and I watch you talk absolute shit and people laugh. And it makes me so angry that I could spend two weeks crafting a joke and you get up there and who remembers shoes? And everybody laughs. But I want to kill you that you do that. But then you are, that's that's kind of what Billy Connolly mm. does, right? That that sort of invisible uh, yeah. craft whereby it's just a person talking. He, he came to see me in New Zealand and him and Ashley sat together and she tells a completely different story for what I tell. So I'm on stage, Billy Connolly's in the audience, sitting with my door, having a pizza and a cup of tea. And every single way through the act, he would say to Ashley, oh, I know how this ends. And she'd go, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and he was guessing the end because it was all stories. Yes. And he, and I, and I unconsciously 
do what he did. I'll go, oh, hang on a minute, remind me to get back to that bit because something's come into my head. Sure. And he said, when I come off stage, you're fucking great comedian. I laughed myself sick. He went, I can't believe that I managed to guess most of the punchlines and Ashley went, yes, he did. <laughs> I had to tell him to shut up about three times. He goes, I know what's going to happen. You so know? talk to me that if you don't sit and write comedy, mm. it's a case of a thing happens to you or yeah. a memory of a thing that happened before you were a comic. What is the, like, the, the process, in inverted commas, must be happening live there on stage yeah. or happening in the kind of, in the way that pub jokes, I always think mm. of, like, you know, jokes in the pub, are like they're like pebbles on the mm. shore. They've yes. just been washed by the retelling yes. over yes. and over again. So talk to me about that kind of, the, the process of that, of telling a story for the first time, thinking, is this funny? Like, are you always confident I'm on always the first confident, telling of a story that it'll be funny? I tell it on stage. And like last night, I sometimes add a memory to it, like music of the jukebox, because I can hear that in the background. So I'm reliving the story as I tell it. Yes. Um, you know, like the, the two wee guys, I'll tell the story of the two wee guys in the pub. Um, and there was two wee men in the pub. It was 1981. Um, I think Tainted Love was on the jukebox. I can't remember. But, oh no, it was this time. Oh, it's coming like a ghost town. I remember it now. And um, a woman, two women came in the bar. It was one with black hair, one with blonde hair. And the guy at the bar said, that blonde hair woman's beautiful. And his friend went, don't, don't go near her. She did 15 years for killing a guy. And the wee guy went, wow, she hasn't had sex in 15 years. Now, that happened in front of me and I remember it in 1981 and it's such a lovely story and it displays human forgiveness, it displays human attraction to sex, it displays tenacity of Glaswegian men yes. and it's funny because he saw the, he never thought about the killing of a man he thought about she's still sexy and maybe she's been starved of sex. Sure. <laughs> I suspect after 15 years, she wasn't really interested in men. A, she's been in jail for 15 years and B, she killed a man. Yeah. She might not be up for it, but he still went for it and that makes me laugh. So I kind of just see it in my head again. And, and is, it, is it a big part of the process then must be deciding which stories to tell? Because yeah. if you're selecting stuff, we've all seen kind of newer yeah. acts do a, a bit of material which as they're doing it you go oh this isn't so much a bit of material as a funny thing that happened to a friend yeah. of yours that yeah. you've kind of in the desperation yeah. to have something to mm. uh, to perform they've gone oh you'll never believe what happened to my mate yeah and, and you sort of go oh sure and it's funny but who gives a fuck yeah you know what does it mean to anything That's whereas right. just the way you 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 describe that story then mm. the tenacity the the, yeah. the innocence all those kind of things it's really they permeate the story yeah well you have to Give the audience... One of the, the best pieces of advice I was ever given was that day when I was going to the Tron Theatre to do that open spot. And my husband, who's never been in show business, has no interest, he said to me, and it still stands to this day, always make them, leave them, make them want more. Never give everybody everything. I went... Okay, Lionel Blair. <laughs> <laughs> Your years on the stage. <laughs> He's never done anything. But he was right. And you don't have to give them everything. Always leave people going, oh, I wish I could hear more of that. Mm. And that, that's the best piece of advice I ever got. And when I go on stage and I think in my head, I can see them, I've got quite a good visual memory. Um, I also paint and draw mm. um, so I can see things in visuals. And I can see things, I can, it's like a mind map and I can see it in my head 
where the next story's going to be. And sometimes I shuffle them, let an iPod shuffle about in my head, and then I go, I'll take that one. And then I go, no, it's like a deck of cards. I don't like that one. This one isn't fit for this gig. This mm. one will work at another gig. I'll do this story. And, and I just do it like that. Have you tried doing it differently or have you always just been instinct driven? This is what I do. I have. I'll tell you what I have done that's really bad. Um, sometimes I deliberately try and throw the gig to see if I can get it back, which is really bad. Because <laughs> sometimes they're just laughing at everything and that annoys me. And I'm like, oh, he's just fucking laughing at I say, oh, that's a curtain. They're like, ha ha. I'm like, no, that's no funny. So then I'll say something really weird to make everybody. And I also try and get a really rowdy crowd to go completely quiet. I try and trick to see if I can get everybody, you know, every single act can I get the audience to shut up and I'll make it my mission to make the whole room go silent. What sort of thing? Um, I'll tell a story and then I'll get quieter and quieter. So they all have to go, they'll be gripped in the story. And there's like, blah, 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 blah. And they all have to go quiet because I've started being quieter. And then I tell this a story about my mum when she went to the headmistress office. And then right to the bit, I just stop in the whole place. You could hear a pin drop. Then I tell the punchline. And I do it to see how long I can keep them in suspense. It's just a thing I do. And I like that. And when you're structuring an hour, how many hours have you done at Edinburgh now? About 25. 22, don't know. Do they, within the run of that hour, does that story stay the same every time? Does that material stay the same? No. Or is it it's an hour of whatever you want to talk about? I kind of try and stay, because in 2003, I did a show called Caught in the Act of Being Myself, and I didn't have management or PR or nothing. And then it was somebody in the Perrier panel said, you have had all the Perrier in. That was the big sort of comedy prize mm-hmm. at the time. I don't know, because I don't have PR or mm-hmm. anything. And I went, what does that mean? And I had to go ask somebody. And they went, every single, they're coming again and again and again. So then they eventually just asked me to come and meet them. And they said, you would have made the list, but you kept doing a different show every night. So when they all sat down to discuss my show, they all realised they'd heard a different show. Okay. So that went against me. So that, for me. some reason, precluded you yes, from... Yes. But the fact that you had multiple hours of brilliant comedy, mm-hmm. again, you didn't fit the template of what they right. were expecting. That's right. and, and that's fine. And I, I kind of enjoy that. Is it fine? Oh, no, it's, it's absolutely just... fine because I can't be defined and I like that. Okay. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you who won the Comedy Award last year. Sure. I don't know. So it's not like, you know, it's like pop idol. Nobody remembers who it was. Um, and that's not putting down any, but it's just that, it, it, you know, people, I, I, I don't know. Um, and I kind of went, A, I finally get the industry to see me. B, I did that many different hours that they enjoyed it, but they couldn't nail it down into one thing. The only thing it made me do was try and make me stick to a theme, but I could still jiggle up things. Yeah, know? okay. So I like to be that comedian who, A, I can do... I mean, Bruce saw said a thing on Facebook a couple of years ago about how there's comedians that just do the comedy small thing. For instance, like Josie Long, mm-hmm. who, brilliant, Bridget Christie, who have got sellout shows and arts theatres and theatres, but they don't really do like jonglers or mm-hmm. the rowdy clubs mm-hmm. or the glee or whatever. Or they just do theatres. You don't really get people that cross. I mean, you're the one of the few acts 
yeah. that can do the Soho Theatre and handle Camden Jonglers as an MC sure. and do the, the normal circuit. So I like that, that I could do, I could appeal to the arts crowd in the small theatres. Um, I can handle the fucking toughest gig and I can do one woman shows at small clubs. So I like that I wasn't just pigeonholed into one thing and I was worried that if I had been nominated for the, it would have been pigeonholed into a thing. Whereas yeah. I like the fact that uh, people can't quite pin me down. And because that, that kind of rebellious spirit, the, you know, does, I guess that stems back to that, that kind of permanent feeling for you that mm. you exist outside of the industry. Sure, I'm a woman who's nearly 60. If you believe the internet, women my age, A, should be at home looking after the grandchildren, B, shouldn't know how to work the internet, C, don't know anything about social media. I fucking nailed it. I've nailed it. I'm nearly 60. I travel the world being a stand-up. I have a sell-out tour. I'm better at the internet than my daughter, and I can make videos on a bus that go viral. I've bucked all the trends that's meant to be. I'm supposed to be sitting at home knitting a new fanny for my menopause or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm many Potential show title next year. <laughs> no, my show title this year is Cancel Janie Godley. Okay. Did you hear about this? No. Oh, this is a great story. So, on the internet, Twitter, predominantly Twitter. And you, and I should say, you are a, a vociferous Twitter yeah. user. Like, yeah. I checked your feed this morning. Yeah. You've tweeted 30 times since yeah. last night. Yeah. I was like, okay, she's into it. Great. So, on Twitter, um, in Glasgow, we have two football teams, Rangers and Celtic. And Rangers are predominantly Protestants, but not all, hashtag not all. And Celtic are predominantly Catholics, hashtag not all. Um, and since the referendum vote has kind of fell into that Celtic supporters who are Catholics like SNP, but not all, and Rangers are a wee bit more sort of union flaggy, like Trump, um, and uh, they're Protestants, but not all. But that's kind of vague bracket that it falls into. Um, but because I am a Rangers fan, I'm also a Protestant. Mm -hmm. um, because I speak out about sectarianism and domestic violence that harms, they took a right fucking spurt at me. They hated it. So they have like these um, websites, chat rooms like Reddit and stuff where they will pick a tweet of mine and they'll tell everybody to go pile on. This has happened for years. And I, instead of going, stop it, guys, I'm like, go fuck yourself. I bet you jizzing your mas back because I don't care, right? I do all the things that you're not meant to do. I answer back. You really do. I, I mean, I've it. never seen... Like, it, I don't interrupt the story, yeah, but, but the amount of abuse on your Twitter feed just this morning. Yeah. So it doesn't bother me because I think because I've had a pub and had that much shit, it, that's a Tuesday to me. So anyway, this is a great story. So coming up, there, there was a specific um, Rangers fan, and I think his nickname was Forza Papak. I don't know what that means. I think it's the name of some Yugoslavian football player. I don't know. Okay. He had so many identities because he kept getting banned for his absolute abuse. I never report them. Mm. All the people who follow me report. I let them go. Mm. But my friends all go, that's fucking it. You know, things like, we're going to kill you. We hope you get thrown off a bridge. You're going to get raped. If you're going to rape me, you better spell it right. So reaping is quite a big thing with the, the folk that can't spell rape. So this goes on and on and on and on. So he gets another identity. And it was just two days before the new year and I, and I always can tell because I start getting 
the flood of it's usually a union jack and it's usually something far righty and mm-hmm. Muslim rape gangs and all that mm-hmm. shit and I hope you get raped by Muslims and all that kind of crap. So I knew straight away something was happening. I went, oh, fuck, they're back. It's fine. And then they put up this hashtag, cancel Janie Godley. What they also do is fake tweets. Mm-hmm. Why do black people have funny noses? They said, I said, and they, they mocked a tweet. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, they right, okay, they're but, like framing you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they, they, they pretended I'd wrote this tweet. They've yeah. got a fake Photoshop tweet. Ginny yeah. Godley's a racist. It's not, you know, people can prove it's not true. So I'm like, just report them. You know, if it's going to be the fake tweets, it's fine. So they started to write hashtag cancel Ginny Godley. So they put it on one of their Rangers chat rooms and read it and blah, blah. So by three o'clock, it was going viral. Cancel Janie Godley. So, yeah, fuck the bitch, kill the bitch, cancel Janie Godley. So I decided, Ashley came in, she went, Mum, cancel Janie Godley's trend. And I went, I know. So I've got a great plan. She went, oh, please tell me what your fucking plan is. I says, every single one that writes it, I'm going to tag my tour on it so they will carry an advert <laughs> for my tour. So I wrote, guys, the far right are trying to get me cancelled. Um, could you please tag it? Hashtag cancel Jenny Godley. Get tickets here at her tour, JennyGodley.com. Within 32 minutes, it flipped. So there's people like Neil Gaiman, David Bowie's son, <laughs> Curtis Steigers, all these people going, and they were using the hashtag cancel Jenny Godley. Fantastic. And you have to, and then people started to upload pictures of the tickets that they had bought. They all started to buy tickets for mm-hmm. my shows mm-hmm. because if there's one thing fucking British public don't like is a woman being attacked by the far right. Mm. They're like, we are not the far right, we are just Rangers fans. Like, mate, I've saw your timeline. The word Muslims rape gang is quite predominant. So we just kept doing it. So by that time at night, it had completely flipped and the guy Farza who'd started it, he got cancelled. So my show this year is called Cancel Jenny Godley. Do you... I mean, I, I like, I, I feel uh, it's, it's so painful to hear about the abuse mm. that you're getting. You don't back down from it. You don't ignore it. You don't not read the comments, any of that kind of stuff. You get in there with a stick and you start hitting yeah. back. Is that, I'm sure you would prefer no one gave you any shit. I mean, I really don't care because I just keep tagging them with my tour. So every single bit of abuse is an advert for my tour. Do you get, I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm saying... Do you enjoy it? Because obviously you would rather not be threatened with death and all this kind of stuff. But do you, is there some sort of, even the word positive, I've got to ask this question carefully. I know what you're going to say, do you deliberately trigger it to harm? Well, no, that's not quite what I'm asking. It's just, you like, you enjoy fighting. Do you enjoy enjoy fighting? fighting? Yeah, and you know what? There is is times where I'll say something and I know it's going to inflame them. But my point is this, Stuart. Why am I not allowed to speak about this? Why, have I had to shut up not to annoy the boys? Is that the society we live in? Go fuck yourself. If I want to talk about a fucking Turkish football player or or a Romanian football, I will speak about it. And if you come and say you're not allowed to talk about that, who the fuck are you, my da? So, no, I'll go for it. But every single time... it flips because they can't maintain it. And then a mass block and mass block and mass block and mass block is brilliant because it also means that all the women following me get to... What we'll do once a month is say something and then the law arrive and then we can mass block them. So what we're doing is drawing all the arseholes in... (laughs) 
so that we can it's a honey trap. burn them in the one building. Yes. <laughs> it's like a little pot yeah. of honey or sugar yeah. for answers. Okay. And we draw them out and go, guys, these are ones we haven't seen before. Mass block. And it does and it means that I mean, for instance, the BBC will put up a video of mine. Um, you know, like this thing for the BBC, mm. and immediately it saw union flags. She's a cow. She's shite. This is terrible. I mean, they, they've never seen me do comedy, mm. but it's just. But in every single comment, all my friends, TV celebrities, have tagged my show on it, my tour on it. So every single comment is an advert for the tour. That's incredible. That's so smart. And they now know that every time they say something. It's going to you carry an advert. Yeah. So the yeah, it's BB- like a benevolent version of yeah. Katie Hopkins, whereby yes. every time someone retweets her, it helps her. Yeah. It's like a good yes. diversion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the other day, the BBC put up my video again, and it normally the BBC love it because they tell me I'll get some like seven hundred comments. And they'll go, ha ha, the BBC will see how shite they are. And the BBC have explained the algorithm doesn't understand love from hate. Sure. It just understands that I'm getting a lot of attention, so they keep giving me more work. <laughs> they don't understand that. So the BBC put up a video the other day. Normally 700 comments. Do you know how many it got? Gone. Go Eight. Because they know that I'm going <laughs> to tag my show on it. <laughs> and is that, are you uniquely... Like your because of your your history and because of everything you've suffered and because of your you've suffered is isn't even the right word necessarily. Just been through. But just been through. And also your connections to the criminal underworld and, yeah. and those kind of things. Do you think that you are uniquely placed to not give a fuck when you're threatened I've with always, awful things online? I've always never give a fuck. I have had men say, I'm going to fucking kill you, beat you up. And I'll say, well, mate, here's the deal. On a Thursday at seven o'clock, I get on the tube, I get off at St Enoch's and I walk through Argyle Street to Wild Cabaret. If you want to come and meet me and have a fight, do it. I'm ready for you. Not one ever turned up and I advertised where I was. This is, and I walk alone. I don't have anybody with me. So if you want to come and have a go, you do it. But they are such fucking cowards that they won't. And I always had this idea years ago in the pub, it's the ones that shout that never do anything. They won't. Yeah, they yeah. won't do anything. The most dangerous person is somebody that's got nothing to lose and they've already got mental health problems. So if they're going to come and attack me, that was going to happen anyway. You know, my husband and Ashley are like, Mum, just be careful. And I'm like, I am. But I'm not going to live my life in fear. I live my childhood in fear. I'm not going to fucking live my adulthood in fear. If any of them want to come and get me, have a go, but I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to do it without a fucking fight. And I know how to fight. I can physically fight. I hate violence, but I know how to do it. And I was taught by my father-in-law how to physically fight. And I can do it. And if you want to come and have a go, I'm up for it. I'm scared. I will not fucking spend my life in fear. I spent my childhood in fear. I'm not going to do it in my adulthood. Do you feel powerful on stage? Do you feel more powerful on Because that's, that's something yeah. I, I equate with comics is you know you sort of do it because you're you we said last night um um, uh it kind of came up on a tangent really about that idea that the comic is controlling how they are laughed at yeah and and that's kind of a a a stereotype of comics maybe that we do it in order to feel powerful you seem pretty powerful anyway oh thank you but i don't do comedy because i do comedy because i can't do anything else i don't even see comedy as a job I can't believe I've got away with this shit. I don't believe I've bought a house doing this. <laughs> but I don't see it as... I think I'm writing a new book. I've got a new book deal. And that's hard. Just a minute is hard. Everything else is easy. Writing a book is hard. 
Acting, fuck, that's hard. I just played Martin Compson's lawyer in a drama okay. and I'd fell down the back stairs of the Pleasance and hurt my knee. Anthony's lucky I never sued him. <laughs> and I had to be a limping lawyer in Tracy's of Val McDermott drama during the festival. And I, I, I'm about to do another short film. I wrote a short film um, called The Last Mermaid and I played it. I acted the lead role in it and it had a great big film crew behind it. And it won the Women Over 50s Comedy Festival. It won the Winchester Film Festival. So it's winning all the festivals, this this short film that I wrote. And uh, I play the lead character in it. And I'm about to do another one with Conrad Begg. It's a different film. But my mermaid film's doing great. Is act- you said acting's hard. What's, h- what's yeah. hard about acting? Did you have to sit about the age of It's <laughs> so frustrating. It's frustrating. The, the, the actual act of acting, the oh, actual it's being dead in easy. front of her. Apparently, I'm really good at it. The film is great. People loved it. I went to the uh, London Film Festival and I went to Leicester Square Theatre and I sat there with my agent, my best friend, and she's like, oh, I've never seen you really act. You better be fucking good. And I'm like, <laughs> they were like, wow, that was amazing. I was like, yeah, I know. It was the bits in between that were boring. Is writing hard? Writing a film? Was yeah, that hard? That was that. That uh, the short film's fucking easy. It's not that hard, right? <laughs> Tell me why. Tell me about writing because, the short film. Because uh, you know the story, and you just have to ad lib bits that don't work, and then f- and it was in Josie Long's short uh, film Super November, and I ad libbed that. I played a really drunk librarian who swore a lot and broke Princess Diana up at every single moment she could. It was all ad libbed. It was fucking easy. That was easy as well. But writing the film was easy because I knew what the the arc of the story was and I just had to fit the bits in. And they kept all my ad-libs in, which was good, and they get the biggest laughs. And writing the book, fucking writing the book is hard. I got this new book. I had three publishers vying for this deal and I went with this one publisher and it's not been publicly announced. I can't really tell you that much about it. But the story that I started out with and then I had to say, listen, I don't like this book I pitched I've started a different story and they're like oh fuck okay <laughs> so, um, so it, but it, the, the book I had pitched them had no um, I couldn't sustain that story but this story I can sustain so they agreed and I get a, they fixed the deal and we did it again so what what aspects of your professional life do you find difficult? Like tax, I'm... tax, <laughs> paperwork. I mean, I mean, creatively, Could creatively not, Everything's speaking. fine, just the fucking admin. Do you never have, like, writer's block or do you never, do you never have self-doubt about your creativity no, or anything like no, that? No, absolutely not. I have seen two naked men with a plank. <laughs> no 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 self-doubt whatsoever if that thing doesn't work that'll work see I'm not that comic that who has this train of thought and go on stage and we've all seen it the first two jokes don't work and they're fucked because that's all they've got I have a supermarket of material so if that aisle doesn't work that aisle will and if that doesn't I'll just head round to cereal and if cereal doesn't work I'll head round to the freezer section but if you're that comic that just has that then you're fucked yeah. whereas I have a hypermarket so I just go I'll keep up with the story and, and what in comedy is outside of your grasp then is there anything you want to be able to do that you haven't been able to do or, that, or yet I'm no I'm good at improvising on stage but I'm no good at improvising with other people. I've okay. tried to do improv with people and I'm like, shut up, I'm still caught. <laughs> I can't do that. I mean, it's a good tip for success is find out what you're good at and yeah. do that. Yeah, I'm not good at improvising with other people. Um, and, I, and I wrote a play that only had one person because I don't 
ultimately I don't trust people. So everything I've written was just, I played the two characters in my play, such was my lack of trust in other people. So, do you want to? Do you, would you like to change that about yourself, or are you happy being like that? Well, I did change it. The short film had other people in it, okay. so I did change it. But how did you feel about that having other people in it? Was that hard? And no, they were great. No, I, I let it go. I understood okay. it and let okay. it go. But excuse me. Um, and I've done panel shows, and I've done Have I Got News for You, and I've done Just a Minute, and I've done Breaking the News, and I've I can do that. That's fine because that's not my thing. Okay, so tell me how you prepare for Have I Got News For You. You don't, that it isn't you just go thing. and do it. You okay. don't prepare. You, if you can't come up with stuff, you shouldn't be a comic. <laughs> I've got a very fine fucking black and white attitude to this. If you can't find something funny to say about something, you shouldn't be there. I remember Jimmy Carr uh, on this uh, podcast mm. years ago said... Um, like it's only he says he doesn't understand why people get upset about their Edinburgh hours. Mm. It's like you, you can have sixty one minute long funny ideas in a yeah. year, surely. Yeah. Just that mentality of like, well, that's that's yeah. just the job. Just get on with it. That, that, that is your job. Just get on with it. I mean, just a minute is really hard because that's a different set of skills. Um, and that I and Nicholas, God love him, who's just died, who I love dearly, used to say, "Mate, you're really not good at this, but you're funny." And that was fine. I didn't have to be good at it. I just had to be funny and no mm. fuck it up. Um, and I accepted that was my role on it, you know. And and what? Okay, let's just try and drill into this. What is at the root of your funniness? Since you were working in your bar, since before you became a comic, you were funny. You could come back. You could fight, and it was presumably it was surprising. It was quick. It mm-hmm. was witty. What's at the root of it? What is it that's funny about you? Honesty, absolute honesty. I will tell everybody everything. Honesty. I've got. There's very few things that people don't know about me. There are, I mean, one of the things that people don't know is is in public and out with people I know I'm incredibly shy and that takes people by surprise. But I genuinely don't know how to deal. I can't do small talk at parties. I remember I last night you said someone was yeah. talking to you in the bar and you're yeah, like, just, I'm going to get my friends. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't like strangers and I'm not good with them. I not, don't like them. I'm, and I've had to learn not to be abrupt to people who approach me in train stations and people who know me. I've had to learn, and Ashley makes a fool of me. She says, this is what I do. Thank you. Thank you. She says, I spent the whole Edinburgh last year going, thank you. (laughs) People say, I really like, thank you. She's like, fucking think of something else she's saying. Please leave me alone. I was like, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I'll go out with my husband who is nameless, faceless, has no digital footprint. And him and I, I'll be walking along the street and I'll have my wee sausage dog in a pram who's dead cute. And people come up, and I think the sausage dog in the pram marks me out as Janie, so they know it's definitely me. <laughs> and they'll go, oh, I really like, he just disappears. He, I don't know why he's not a fucking spy for the British government, because that man can just blend into a shop window, and I can't find him. I'm like, where did you go? Did you climb into the lampshade? And then people come up and go, and I go, thank you very much, and then just keep going, just keep. I went for my birthday with my sister. It was my birthday two weeks ago, and we went to this Italian restaurant in Glasgow. And my sister, I've got quite a, I, my brother and sister, I'm the youngest, my other brother died who had HIV um, we're not a close family we don't hate each other we don't have any problem we just don't really gel I'm very different to my brother and sister and um, and so it was quite a surprise she went let's go out for dinner and I thought oh, that's nice I want to make bonds with my sister 
And we sat in this Italian restaurant and they knew it was my birthday and they brought out, you know, a panna cotta with a wee candle. And you know how when you're in a restaurant you go, happy birthday. The whole restaurant went, dear Janie, <laughs> That's very lovely. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, my brother and sister don't quite get what it is I do. They, they're like, oh, that's weird. Or How do you feel about that? I don't care. I don't work for them. They don't put money in my my bank. So I always have that attitude. Like it's that thing where I don't understand where when people say you know online they go you're ugly and fat and I think you're really ugly and I'm like why would I listen to a stranger tell me I was ugly when my dad and my husband and my daughter say I'm beautiful I'm beautiful and I don't understand how you don't know I'm beautiful but it's that thing where. And when people, when women say they're beautiful, everybody goes, she's deluded. No, no, I'm beautiful. How dare you say I'm not? I believe I am. And if you believe you are as well, then the power of strangers won't hurt you. So why would you listen to a complete stranger say, I love everything you do or I hate everything you do? None of those two groups know who you are. They don't really know you. And how do you know, even if the good people who really like you, how do you know they don't kill cats in private? So my attitude is, you know, I don't fucking know you, so your opinion isn't that important. So what about the opinions of all the people in the room who are laughing at you? Are well, there, that's is comedy. The that's, important? And that, that's, that's important because they're validating it there. But I mean, like when people come online and say, you're ugly, you're horrible, you're no funny, and I'm like, mate, I've sold it a tour. I'm beautiful. I don't understand how you don't know that. So that's fine. Maybe you're beautiful to somebody. So, well. And women traumatise themselves so much. I mean, I did. I remember, I remember way back in the 80s when I had the pub and I had Ashley and I was almost anorexic. I decided to lose weight really fast because I was a dick. Um, and I remember getting really faint and shaky. My husband went, why are you not eating? I went, I don't really want to look fat in case everybody laughs at me. He went, you don't like any of these people. So why does their opinion matter? And I'm like... Yeah, that's right. I mean, why do you want to impress Tommy, the car mechanic? He's a fucking drunk that beats his wife. Why is him thinking you're thin important? If you could go back 25 years and tell younger Janie how to get better at comedy faster, what would you say? Don't, it's not a race. Just date at your own pace. You're doing the right thing. Just do what you're doing. Every single experience will amount to something. It's just sum of parts. You don't have to run and be the best ever. And every time you come up against adversity, just do what you do and fuck them. Don't care. And do you think you're, given the hardship that you've undergone, Mm -hmm. do you think that your mental health is robust because of that hardship, mm-hmm. in spite of that hardship, by accident. Because I feel like anyone listening to this will think, God, I wish I could just have a little Janie Godley in my head that when things got tough, mm-hmm. I could just switch on that kind of attitude. I think it's mental health is really hard. I mean, Ashley suffers from really bad anxiety and she talks about how she's got a voice in her head that tells her everything's going to be wrong. Um, and my husband, we has mental health problems. My mum had mental health problems, really bad. So did my brother and my sister. Everybody in my family has had terrible mental health problems. And I think Ashley says that when I talk about this, she says, you have millions of mental health problems. You just don't know you've got them. And I'm like, well, I'm happy with that. Um, I think that the best way, if I could give anybody advice, is 
is it, you know, if you're doing something that's really detrimental to you, you know, take time out, don't, and accept that it's wrong. You know, if it's a job you're doing that makes you so fucking sad, look at it and say, is it really worth it? Is it worth my life doing this? Because the pub really got me down near the end. I remember that. That was just make me feel really fucking exhausted by the relentless boredom of it, you know. But I don't know. I don't have advice because I don't know how to do it. But I know that my mental health is pretty robust. I kind of just think, why does this make me feel sad? Okay, I understand. That's why. I had a couple of really blue days last year, but I think it might have been my menopause, and I don't know because that happened and I never even knew it happened. So I never get, like, terrible sweats or anything. I just literally had a period that slowly faded away like a candle. <laughs> just like... Just, but then nothing else happened, and I'm like, oh, that must have been that. No, and I'm physically healthy as well. I get the occasional migraine, but I think that's just my age, you know. I don't know. I, I tend to be quite strong and healthy. And you're vaping, not smoking. Oh, yeah, I stopped smoking about six years ago, and I play with my wee funny vape. And I don't, I never done drugs, never done hard drugs. I was never a drinker. Never. I used to smoke a bit of weed occasionally. But, you know, my husband and I aren't big drinkers either. Okay. So I'm, and is this your first time touring in the UK? Uh, yes, it's the first big, I did Scotland and sold out completely every okay. single seat. So is this, is this scary now this to be breaking now, new ground? Especially after Brexit. So I'm going into Tory country, Boz Deep. So I'm starting in Corby and then I go to Newport and then I don't know the rest. And then it, it goes like Leeds, Bath, Manchester, Comedy Store, blah, blah, Southampton, all those places. Then okay. it goes to London at Leicester Square Theatre, which is sold out. Then it comes back up the road to Scotland. People sold out, St Andrews sold out, King's Theatre sold out for two nights. So the bits in between, they're a wee bit dodgy. I mean, Bilston outside Birmingham, nobody's buying tickets for that one, whereas another one is completely fine, so I can't make sense of it. But fuck it, I'll go do it, you know. I'll make my money. I've already made my money. I've already made what I need to make for the rest of my life, so I'm living life as I want to. I don't, my house is paid off. I don't have any debt. I don't have fuck all to worry about. Actually, school fees have been paid. We get a free university education because we're Scottish. My mortgage is paid. Everything is paid. I've got money in the bank. All I need to do is just go from city to city buying cake. Thanks, Janie. Thank you. So that was Janie. Remember, there's another 25 minutes of extras available if you're in the Insiders Club, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And that's really worth signing up for those. I'm sure, like me, you could listen to Janie uh, wax lyrical for a lot longer. So thank you to Janie for coming on the show. Really appreciate that. Remember, she's on tour right now. Go to janiegodley.com or indeed at Janie Godley on Twitter to find out more about that. And thank you once again to The Stand Newcastle for not just a fantastic weekend of gigs and, in my case, tour shows in Newcastle and Glasgow. Thanks, everyone, that came along to those a few weeks ago now. Uh, but also for your assistance in uh, giving me some space to record that episode. So, a few brief thank yous to other members of the ComCom team and then I shall post Amble at you. This episode was edited and uploaded and produced by Nathan Wood. Music was by Rob Smouten. Your podcast consultant was Pete Dobbing and uh, Jake Crossland did the logs. That's everything, I think. 
I, I do hope you get into that insider stuff. There's some cracking stuff there. And thank you to everyone that's been signing up for that recently. Um, I am a little... There was one or two teething troubles with the tech just in the last couple of months, and I think those are all now resolved. But uh, thank you to those of you who got in touch with various quibbles. <laughs> we should advertise the Insiders Club has a no quibble guarantee, by which I mean, if you send in any quibbles, I will not pay attention to them. That isn't the case, but that would be quite a fun no quibble guarantee. Okie dokie. Um, that's everything. I'll post Amble at you after this noise, but otherwise, bye for now. C- tremendous. <laughs> it's clearly not everything, is it? Because here's me still talking. Got some cracking episodes in the can. I can now tell you we have Desiree Birch at long last. Um, and uh, we have Robbie Collins, a very, very good comedian, very exciting comic uh, who is in South Africa at the moment. He's Trevor Noah's support frequently uh, and is just a sensational comedian in his own right, really sort of languid and powerful and just a joy to talk to. And Alonzo Bowden, who you might know uh, from Last Comic Standing in the States, not to mention uh, an, a shocking, a bewildering variety of uh, of other stuff over the course of the last 27 years of his career. Really good episodes with all three of those terrific acts coming shortly. And some sad news as well uh, about uh, a forthcoming festival cancellation, but I will talk about that in the post-amble. So that, for now, concludes the podcast. See you soon. So... South by Southwest was cancelled. I had some crackers lined up for that. Some really good... I was going to roast battle Matt Kirshen as well, which is a, a particularly uh, appetising cherry on top. So I just want to, in case he gets around to listening to this at any time, just thank you so much to Charlie for putting all of his work into organising South by uh, the Comedy Strand, only to uh, have it snatched uh, away from us all at the very last minute. And this leads on to what I want to talk about, which is the amount of posts I'm seeing amongst not just comics, but any self-employed people. I had a chat with my dear friend Andre last night, um, who's a fabulous photographer, and a decent portion of his income, I think, comes from uh, uh, comes from sort of kind of corporate events, conventions, and events and what have you overseas, uh, many of which have been cancelled. So there's a lot of people talking about whether or not Edinburgh is going to go ahead. I have to say, I certainly didn't want South by Southwest to get cancelled. Of course not. But in some ways, just speaking personally, the cancellation of something is preferable to me dithering for two weeks and then eventually ringing the organisers and saying, I don't think I can come, which I think was a position probably quite a lot of people were in. So I suppose... Sorry, my voice is absolutely shattered. I got back from South Africa a day ago and didn't sleep very much on an overnight flight. Um, but I am at least back in the country, which is not the case with everyone that was trying to get back from wherever they are, especially not if you're in uh, Lombardy or indeed in the whole of Italy, which I see is now under lockdown. So without going too deeply into the this, you know, any specific information about coronavirus, because I, I think I think the issue I want to talk about is sort of to do with confidence, isn't it? Rather than whether or not it's going to create an apocalypse. Uh, it's more to do with, even if, you know, there's kind of an ongoing argument about whether or not it's worse or better than flu, which I'm not participating in at all. I'm just sort of trying to pay attention to as many proper sources as possible. But confidence is the issue, isn't it? If people lose confidence in outdoor events, then they'll vote with their feet. I really want to go to Glastonbury. I hope that's still happening. I really want to go to Llama Tree Festival. I hope that's still happening. But I think often festivals, 
certainly British summer festivals, they are often not washing your hands festivals, aren't they, really? So uh, I find it, I don't know, I'm trying to sort of maintain confidence. The big one for us is Edinburgh, isn't it, for us comics? And I wonder what will happen. Is it possible that the festival itself be cancelled? If the festival itself were cancelled and they banned gatherings of larger than a 1,000 people, so there was, for example, no one allowed on the high street, then what is that? What is a gathering? Is enough people filtering into a town? Does that constitute a gathering? A city, I should say. Apologies there for calling Edinburgh a town. And because so much of it seems fringy, it's open access and peripheral, especially now with the free fringes, can rooms open on their own? And provided there are punters to go in and see them, would that still work? Say half the acts didn't go. Would that mean slightly more audiences for uh, for the other acts? Would it? What if the audience is stay away in droves? I mean, ultimately, I don't want to stoke anything here, <laughs> any civil unrest. But I suppose for anyone, performer or not, who is self-employed, let alone people sort of slaving under the gig economy and, and self-employed in very precarious and exploited positions... It is a pretty scary time, regardless of the fatality or not of the, 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 the disease itself, the virus itself, but simply because so much of it is based on people gathering together. So much of it, so much of my work is based on people being in rooms together. And so much of my online work, I suppose I'm very lucky in that I have the flexibility. And who knows, maybe in the next few weeks, you might see me start to offer uh, online mentoring over Skype for uh, <laughs> for uh, high but reasonable sums of money. Who knows? Maybe, what is it? Is it all going to... I keep hearing, oh, listen, by summer, it'll all be over. And then someone always replies, yes, but Iran's quite warm. <laughs> and there's the coronavirus going on there. So who knows? I think the important thing is just to panic by as much toilet roll as possible for no reason clear reason um and then at least you can start bartering i you know i've got material potentially material at the, at the top of this year's show about if you've seen it the stuff about the fairy doors uh in my neighborhood and there's a little newer bit i've been kind of cultivating within that about and it wasn't it's not coronavirus related at all but it's a bit about i live on top of a hill and it's about whether or not other people with a with a view to climate change being increasingly catastrophic it's about whether whether other people like me have started to assess where they live from the perspective of how defensible it is or you know it's that you know it's like a sort of um a small scale version of where would you go in the case of a zombie apocalypse and i would like to remind uh, my friend hutch uh, of our deal and the exact location in london that we decided upon after some weeks of uh, pub work uh, where we would meet with our then hypothetical families in the case of a zombie apocalypse. But with a view to the environment becoming increasingly challenging and ultimately, and I don't want to, I've got some stuff about this as well, upon the toes of which I don't want to tread now, but it does strike me having just come back from South Africa. Now, maybe I should save a South African post-amble for, um, for the end of the Robbie Collins episode. But I, I feel it's related to this. I suppose that when you are in a... This is something that came up with, the, with, with Matt Winning. And if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to the Matt Winning episode because he's a climate change scientist and he knows what he's talking about. Um, with regard to how climate change will affect people in the short to mid term, and specifically how it will affect people like me. I can only talk from my own perspective. And someone like me lives in Britain, an island. Uh, which I believe is cooled slightly by the sea around it. Um, but 
let's not get into any science because I don't know anything about anything. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that South Africa seemed to me to have, certainly the bits of it we were in, a sort of what I'd call a compound mentality, kind of living in a compound. Like you you live in the hotel, you get bus to the gig, you do the show and you get the bus back to the hotel. And you don't go out at night, uh, certainly not on your own, and you take great care and travel around in large numbers during the day. The parts of Cape Town that we were in, and I'll go into this more, uh, the positive aspects of the Robbie Collins episode, because I've had a wonderful time and, and enormous thanks to everyone related to the organisation of that festival. But it did strike me that that experience, let's say, just as a parallel, that experience of going from Bristol to Cape Town and seeing how different life is there is a sort of a potential precursor to the fact that things can be very different and you just find a way to deal with them, right? So, for example, the the extreme poverty that surrounds parts of South Africa and parts of Cape Town is incredibly eye-opening and, and, and brutal and painful to me to see. And yet, for people who live there, it is commonplace and it's all they've ever known. For people who are relatively affluent, then it's simply a case of living in a more secure way, counting your own blessings and looking after you and yours. And so I suppose it just got me thinking with regard to one of the effects of climate change, which we know will be increased social inequality. And let's face it, without the environment hitting the fan, that seems to be a sort of a, a... a trend, doesn't it? Even not counting the environment, inequality gets gets worse and worse. And I remember being in, in South by Southwest last year and being struck simultaneously by the, to me then, at that time, very futuristic Uber and Lyft electric scooters littering the place that you can, provided you have a smartphone and a credit card, you can just get on a thing and zoom away on it. And often the people that you are zooming past is are kind of communities of very... Uh, street-based homeless people. And I, I, I don't know if you've been to bits in America where this is an issue, street-based homeless people. What do I mean? I mean people who are very visibly homeless and create little sort of mini townships and communities and stay outside on the street and live in those communities and there's not a lot of rain, so they just kind of build structures in which to live. And so you already see that the disparity, you know, the, the difference, the inequality socially as all of these guys at a festival planning their next startup scoot on an electric skateboard, which may as well be a hoverboard, past communities of very desperately impoverished people. So, I don't know, am I making a point? I suppose that it's frightening in a different way. I feel like I'm frightened about the future, but not in the way I expected to be. I'm frightened about how the the short to mid-term effects of climate change, and who knows, perhaps coronavirus will impact this as well. Pete Dobbing, your podcast consultant, and I were having a chat recently. He does a lot of street performing and handles a lot of cash, and he was speculating as to whether corona might be one of the things that stops people using cash. Because if you think about it from a futuristic perspective, why would you handle grubby money that's been handled a lot if there were a contactless alternative? So I suppose I've always thought that the future is so unpredictable. Like, you can predict certain elements of the future, like Arthur C. Clarke predicted the internet. He didn't predict that it would largely be driven by porn and war. So I suppose whatever we come up with, we find we as humans sort of, if I say perverted, I don't mean specifically with reference to the porn bit, but whatever 
we predict about the future, it always surprises us because the future happens to almost or just over 8 billion problem solvers. And we descend like little problem solving (laughs) creatures onto aspects of the future and we warp and change them and our, our collective consciousness changes things in completely unpredictable ways. Who could have predicted memes, for heaven's sake? Um, so, yeah, this is all kind of turning into a point. Can anyone... I'm, I'm going to employ a director for this post anvil. Could someone trim this and make a point out of it? It's quite far, far-ranging, far if not very uh, succinct. I suppose going to South Africa and feeling not only sort of socially out of my depth, unable to read the 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 complex codes that are associated with people's dress and where they're from and what their motivations are and what have you. Very, very complex and in a new place for me. Not only that, also felt quite vulnerable because of the amount of face masks I was seeing as I travelled through large international airports. And I suppose my point is simply that. With all of those things kind of jangling in my central nervous system as I as I travelled alone and sleepy, I got a real sense of the future being... And I've, I mean, I've worried about this. I talked about this a little bit in Primer. Have you seen the film Children of Men? It's a Clive Owen film. Absolutely brilliant film, but it's set so... Ne- it's set in such a near future. I highly recommend it. It's harrowing, but I also highly recommend it because it's so... It's a future which is recognisably the present, but only very slightly different in really awful and selfish and scared ways that might well happen. Is that a point? I didn't mean to freak you all out. And let's remember what Janie Godley said about um, just having robust mental health and never worrying about things and getting on with stuff in 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 the face of, in her case, adversity that would overwhelm me. My God. So let's... Let's keep a little bit of Janie Godley in our hearts uh, and not be scared, but maybe not tell the trolls where you live. Who knows? Bye for now. (laughs) 